Blog Talk Radio. tonight and to be able to speak about recovery, the importance of recovery. And uh, tonight, you know, we have an open panel, uh, so we'll be able to um, to speak about different uh, topics. Um, we'll feature a survivor professional co-host who will be able to uh, share on tonight, so we will bring them on. Uh, let me start by first, uh, again, reminding you we're on scan number 3317, and let me start by reading our mission statement, okay? Well, first I'll start with what is NASCA, because tonight we're on NASCA's Subtitle Views Now radio show. And NASCA stands for the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse, okay? Again, I'm your host tonight, Dr. Nancy V. Brown-Willis, and I am so excited about tonight's show, uh, being able to have an open panel and an open discussion on such an important topic. Um, you know, I, I want to talk about victim shaming um, and the long-term effects of abuse, sexual abuse, and trauma in the body. Uh, so I think that this definitely will be a very important topic to discuss on tonight. I will now just start with the NASCA mission statement. We have a single purpose at NASCA to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violence or physical abuse, emotional traumas and neglect. And we do so with only two goals. One, educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic worldwide problem that affects everyone. Uh, And number two, offering hope and healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and the most important part, recovery. I want to, um, you know, kind of, I want to first, if I may, just get a chance to kind of 
break down what trauma is. You know, um, trauma is an emotional reaction to a stressful, frightening, or disturbing incident in a force of events. Nearly everyone has faced some form of trauma in their lives. In fact, in 2015, a survey says uh, of nearly 69,000 adults that 70% reported traumatic events and 30% reported four or more, okay, uh, that they have experienced at least uh, four or more. Some examples of traumatic experiences include uh, war, natural disasters, sexual or physical assault, death of a loved one, witnessing death uh, or severe injury, serious illness, severe automobile accident, domestic violence. And again, um, you know, these are just some examples of traumatic experiences, okay? Um, Some of these experiences, you know, are, are really big traumatic experiences that can be linked with post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, that condition, which is PTSD, affects around 8% of Americans today, okay? Um, a lot of different forms of distressing events, um, and they may be due such as breakups, divorce, um, bullying, losing a job, uh, you know, having an injury and, and it changes your life, right, financial worries. So um, I just wanted to make sure that um, that we discussed that uh, tonight. All right. So it looks like uh, tonight's special co-host uh, should be on. Um, it looks like it is Sherry White from Covington, Tennessee. Uh, and she's an anti-bullying advocate and an author of three books. I'm not sure if she's on tonight, so I'm going to open up the mic so that if she's on, she can say hello, and she will be my co-host on tonight. Uh, so if, Ms. Sherry, are you on, Ms. White? I sure am, and I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, doctor. <laughs> yes, ma'am. <laughs> I'm so happy that, um, that you joined us tonight. Uh, and, you know, this is an open panel, so I do want to make sure that we all do partake. And we are going to address, um, you know, the topic of how trauma does affect our bodies and how, you know, trauma can live in our bodies and it can come out at the wrong place at the wrong time. But we also have um, a wonderful uh, person, guest, um, special guest, who's joining us tonight part of the panel, um, and she's been a guest with us uh, a couple of times. Um, her name is Victoria Valentino, uh, and she is um, an author, an advocate, and a survivor of abuse herself. Um, and I wanted to really kind of talk about the topic of victim shaming because, um, you know, this is a topic that I brought up a couple of weeks ago to one of my friends that I really, really wanted to address. Um, and oddly enough, Probably three days after I shared that with her, uh, this this issue came up with, I don't know if you guys are aware, um, if you're not speaking, if you can mute the background, because I'll mute it, everyone, I'm sorry, you all, and, and I hear a little back noise, so just if you're not speaking yet, if you can mute yourself, that will just make it a little smoother with the sound, um, but I don't know if you guys are aware that um, with Puff Daddy, that's Sean Puppy Combs, um, his name, um, he's a rapper, 
uh, there has been allegations that, you know, there was sexual abuse and a lot of other things going on, uh, with which his ex-girlfriend, Kathy, um, has, uh, you know, has put out out in 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 the world and let it be known uh and and right after she put it out the next day they settled out right away uh you know but we're doing victim shaming and um and just talking bad about her for speaking up which i found really odd because like this is the reason why victims sometimes don't share um so um miss terry miss white if you have any thoughts about that or anything that I started talking about today, please join me. Sure. You know what? I, it's that is it's gaslighting, and that's what we need to see it as. It's it's they are gaslighting her. Uh, I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe uh, uh, Sean Puffy Combs. Maybe he's paid some people to. Uh, gaslight her, you know, I mean, this is his reputation. He's trying to protect his reputation. And uh, I hate to say it, but celebrities aren't, uh, they're not shed in a very good light anymore because a lot of things have come out about a lot of celebrities. Uh, You know, R. Kelly, you know, he, he did the same thing, you know sexually abusing women. So anytime that, uh, anytime you speak out and people push back by talking about you and smearing you, it's gaslighting, plain and simple. They're trying to shut you up. They want to shut, if they gaslight you, they think that maybe, you know, you'll back off and you'll, you'll clam up. Wow. But that's the last thing you should do. But it's all, it's gaslighting, all, and it's all an attempt to silence you. And that's the important thing. This is Victoria here, by the way. Hi. If you don't want to in this conversation. But also, you know, the, the people out in the audience, when they see performers and they see actors like Bill Cosby, like R. Kelly, like Puff Daddy, they want to believe the character that they're portraying to the audience. And so they want to believe that Cosby was Dr. Huxtable, when in fact he really wasn't. He had a shadow self, a shadow life. And so anybody that blows their their image of him that they have held in their hearts that made them feel good about themselves or their world or their culture, it shatters that. It shakes them up, and, and they just don't want to believe that, that right. the image that they've had is not who this person really is. And and there's so much abuse of women in the entertainment industry, in the film industry, in the music industry. Women are just sort of collateral damage. Right. And, um, you know, it's what were you wearing and why did you go out with him? You knew he was married and why did you do this and why did you do that? Instead of saying, look, if this guy was really the honorable person that he has been promoting himself as being, 
you know, then he shouldn't have taken advantage of my naivete or my vulnerability. Right. So, you know, we get all of the apologists who just want to hang on to this false image of the entertainer because they're probably unhappy in their own lives and they're projecting all of their needs and desires onto this false image. Right. You know, we all have like a talisman, you know, like we have, you know, some people have a a statue of the Holy Mother. Some people have a Buddha. Some people, you know, have the cross, you know, different things depending on where you come from because every human being needs to hang on to something, you know? Exactly. And, and, and so, so much of the entertainment industry presents these entertainers as iconic figures. And so we honor them, we worship them and we, Put exactly. all of this stuff on them that they really don't have. They're just people like you and me. You know, they take their socks off the same way you and I do. They put their That's pants right. on the same way. You know, they get yep. up in the morning, they feel like crap, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. the same old, same old. But because humans need to have somebody to idolize on some level, that they get away with all this stuff because they know when they step out on the stage or when they step out in an autograph signing, they have all of these people who just adore them and worship them and don't know the real person behind the mask, you know? So uh, it's easier for them to turn their anger on we, the survivors, you know? Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, Ms. Victoria, I wanted, um, if you can just tell us a little bit about, who you are um, and just how you have personally gotten to a place where you can relate to this. I don't know if you've gotten a chance to see the story of Cassie, um, Cassie, you know, telling her story and, uh, or putting out this, you know, uh, putting out the story already. I don't know if you've heard of it, but um, how are you able to relate to it? Because some of the viewers have never heard your name. They don't know who you are. Uh, sure. So you I a little understand that. Well, I'm a grandmother, first and foremost, <laughs> and um, I I was a Playboy centerfold in 1963 when I was 19 years old. I'm going to be 81 next month, and I have six grandchildren, two daughters, and my little boy, who uh, was biracial, uh, drowned in a swimming pool in 1969, and Bill Cosby knew about it, and he took advantage of my grief to get to my roommate who he had the hots for, and I distracted him, and I became the sacrificial lamb. And uh, she went on to guest star in one of his shows in 86, and she's with his agency, William Morris, and doesn't want to have anything to do with me. So I became the negative person. Don't talk about Kim. He's wonderful. You're negative. Right, so this is a, ties right into the whole victim blaming. She was unconscious. I was getting raped. You know, <laughs> we were both drugged and kidnapped, but um, I'm the one who took the hit. 
and I became suicidal, and I walked away from a recording contract at Capitol Records that I had just gotten to do an album of my own songs. And my producer was a guy named Vic Briggs, who just died two years ago. He was the lead guitar for The Animals, you know, that British rock group, uh, Eric Burden's The Animals. They did House of the Rising Sun and all that. He was lead guitar. Anyway, so... um, I walked away from everything for 13 years, you know, and every woman I know who was drugged and assaulted by not just Cosby, but every single famous entertainer or so famous person has had their careers derailed and their lives turned upside down. And sometimes they're left with physical damage that needs to be repaired, that they can't afford to be to have repaired because they got their careers derailed and they are barely able to feed their kids and, and put food in their own mouth, you know, or pay a right. rent. And then, so that adds to the shaming, the blaming, the victimization. First, they're raped or sexually assaulted, and then they can't make it because they're so damaged, yet they see their rapist becoming more famous, more wealthy, and it just keeps re-victimizing them every day. Oh, my it pushes goodness. Them down, pushes them down, pushes them down farther. And then, and then the trauma, the PTSD that you were talking about, that gets passed on to their children or into a relationship if they can even ever have a healthy relationship after that. Because their partner, then if they get lucky and find a good guy, but their children all have to deal with all of this traumatic trickle down, you know, all of the generational trauma, because it's not an isolated situation. You know, it's not like, oh, I got raped, now I'm going to go take a hot shower and douche, you know, and then it's going to be over tomorrow, pardon my French, um, but right. you know, you no matter how you manage to deal with it, whether you're slashing your wrists or brushing your shoulders off, you know, and and getting back out and going to work the next day, you still have all of this trauma, and it gets passed down to your children, and they don't even know why, and then they grow up and have children, and they're ricocheting off of your trauma that they that you put on them and their little kids your grandchildren don't even know why their moms are dealing with or their dads you know are are behaving the way they are so it's not isolated you know it's it's passes down it spreads out it's a disease right so no, that's my rant <laughs> Um, so, Victoria, I wanted to just ask you, so you're saying that you were raped by Bill Cosby? The end of 1969, I guess I had just turned 27. My little boy died a week and a half after his sixth birthday in my music attorney's swimming pool. And um, Cosby knew about it. He held my son's photograph in his hands. I told him the whole story. 
and then um, bumped into him later on at a restaurant that he knew, and I was with my roommate, and she had these eyes, and that was one of his fetishes, eyes. And he was fascinated by her, and he came over to our table, and he was, of course, part owner of the restaurant, as it turned out, and um, used my grief, my the knowledge of my grief, because I was crying really badly that day, and I didn't even look up at him at the table because I was crying so hard, and I am not one of those girls that, that cries pretty, <laughs> I can tell you right now. So... Uh, I was dripping tears in my soup. And uh, he suggested that uh, she take me to this Finnish steam bath. And he was going to treat us. And then when we got finished, he would call, he would uh, send his driver over to our house. And I was living at my grandma's house in West Hollywood at the time. Uh, she had died three weeks after my son, which really, you know, it's like one trauma on top of another. And uh, and he sent his car over with his driver and took us to a restaurant. And Cosby came up and met us and took us downstairs into the restaurant. And he was making all of his little jokes, and I wasn't really very... Uh, responsive because I just wanted to go home. It was a really bad day for me. And so he put a pill down next to my wine glass and he said, here, take this. It'll make you feel better. It'll make us all feel better. And then he put a pill next to her wine glass and he pretended to take one himself. And then he leaned over and put another one directly into my mouth and directly into her mouth. And pretty soon our faces were practically falling into our plates. We had spinners. I was feeling nauseated. And I said, I want to go home. And he said, oh, okay, I'll take you. And we went up to the parking lot and his chauffeur was gone. And I asked him, where is your chauffeur? He said, oh, he had something else to do, but I'll drive you. And instead of hanging a right out of the parking lot to go down onto Sunset Boulevard to go to my grandma's house, which was only about five minutes away or so, he took a left up into the Hollywood Hills. And I was in the back seat. She was in the front because she was the one he was really interested in. And uh, all of a sudden he stopped in front of some building and he said, Oh, I want to show you my awards. <laughs> and I was going, Oh God, please you know, just let me go home and go to bed. And um, we were both just hunched over trying not to throw up in the big stars car and feeling, you know, just, just dizzy, you know? And uh, he took her out and I was thinking, okay, well, he's interested in her. I'm just going to stay here and wait and, he can show her his awards and then they'll come back and we can go home. But he opened the back seat of the back door of the car and took me out and took me upstairs. It was like a second floor. He said it was his office, but it was clearly not a working office. It was just this little tiny room um, with two love seats, low lighting and uh, an antique writing desk and a little French provincial type phone and a little table lamp. And, uh, she went straight over to the little love seat and sat down and keeled over on her right side and passed out. 
And I sat down on the one closest to the front door and put my head back. And I guess I must have passed out for a minute because everything was so silent that um, it was the silence that woke me up. And I thought I had been left behind because I passed out. And I looked around and um, he was sitting right next to her and looking down on her like a hawk, you know, like he was going to pounce on this little mouse. And I saw exactly what was on his mind. It didn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out, you know, and I tried to distract him. But I was so drugged out, whatever he gave us, I couldn't talk. So I had it in my mind what I wanted to say. But when I tried to make the the words come out, it didn't connect. I sounded like Frankenstein garbling, you know. And uh, he ignored me and ignored me. Then he got irritated And then I could see this anger building on his face. And then he stood up and he came towards me with this anger on his face. And I had already been an abused and raped woman in the past. So I was scared. I didn't want to get hit. So I went to stand up and my legs were like rubber and I started to collapse and I grabbed onto him to keep from falling. Next thing I knew, he was sitting on the love seat and I was on my knees and he was unzipping his jeans. And then he abandoned us when he was done with me. And uh, I said, how, how are we going to get home? He said, call a cab. <laughs> and we didn't know where we were. How do you call a cab to some place where you don't even know the address? Pointed to this French provincial phone and slammed the door disdainfully. He looked at He didn't even look at me. He just looked at the phone with this ugly, you know, disdainful that I can't even think of another word to describe it expression on his face and he left and I staggered over to her and I shook her I said we got to get out of here we got to get out of here and she realized right away you know we were in trouble by my tone of voice and of course she was all drugged out and uh, so we went over to the phone and then we thought how do we call a cab we don't know where we are right And she said, well, maybe we can call home. She had a boyfriend. I had a boyfriend. They were both living with us. And she said, maybe maybe my boyfriend can, you know, I don't want to mention his name, but, you know, maybe he can figure out what we should do or how to come get us or something. And uh, so we picked up the phone and there was no dial tone. So she said, oh, it must have come out of the jack. And she got down on her hands and knees, crawled under the desk, no jack. And then we picked up the phone cord, and it was one of those old cloth cords, and it was cut. It was a prop phone. There was no phone. Use it to oh, use. my goodness. Yeah, so we knew it was all planned out. And uh, so we panicked, and we thought, we've got to get out of here. you know. And so we staggered out, and we were going to go in the elevator. And then we thought, oh, my God, what if the elevator door opens? And he's standing there, and then we're trapped. So we found the stairwell and clattered down to the street and we were up in the hills and we could look down on the city and you know all the lights were down and if it had been a different night it would have been a beautiful scene well she started running down and I started running after her and um, then she eventually got to the Sunset Strip and a cab just miraculously happened to be passing which doesn't happen in LA very often you know New York different story but LA no And uh, we just 
got in the cab and, and went home and we she rushed into the house. He was her boyfriend was waiting for her and you know, she went into his arms and they went off into their bedroom and I went into the back bedroom where I had been as a baby when I was born. My mother and I, because my dad was killed in World War II and uh, that's where we lived when I was a baby. So I went back to that room and then I started, next couple of days, everything was hitting me and I started um, getting very suicidal and I was flashing at my wrists. Unfortunately, I had my grandmother's old antique dull sewing scissors, but that was the only thing I could find at the moment. And then my boyfriend came home, saw me trying to slash my wrists, and I was crying hysterically, and he slapped me in the face, threw me on the bed, and he raped me, threw stuff in the duffel bag, and took off. So I lost my boyfriend. I couldn't go back into the studio and record my album. And... um I just walked away from everything for 13 years, threw everything in my car and just hit the road and went out to Topanga Canyon, which is a canyon in Los Angeles where a lot of musicians and artists and everybody lives about 45 minutes northwest of Los Angeles. So I lived in a dirt-floored garage for almost nine months. Yep. It was really bad. Very self-destructive. And I never recorded my album, away from my family, everything, you know. And to this day, my my sister, I well, I don't even have anything to do with her anymore. But to this, the last time I saw my sister, the last word she ever screamed at me was "whore." You know, this is the victim shaming. They know something's wrong. They know you've had all these things happen to you. But does the man ever get? Uh, to have to deal with the, the consequences of his own actions? No. You know, it's us. We wind up, you know, just like we're the ones who carry the babies. <laughs> you know, we've got the responsibility of dealing with whatever the guys do, you know. <laughs> it's Miss it's, uh, mm-hmm. Victoria, I wanted to ask you a question. Um and then I really wanted to also get Miss um, White, you know, Miss Sherry White's uh, thought in, on this because I know that she's going to be able to relate in some areas, many areas, I'm sure. But um, I wanted Absolutely. to ask you um, about uh, the – did you ever have to experience being bullied or being – I don't know if um, now that you're online, if you're seeing people commenting and saying that you're just a attention seeker a liar. I don't know. For me, I was able to kind of look at some of the comments when Cassie came out, Cassie came out um, and, and shared her story. And, and there were people really doing some heavy duty victim shaming to the point that I was like, wow, this is why people don't want to come out. Did you deal with any bullying or did people give you a hard time? Did people not believe you? Did they say you were looking to get paid? Like, because that that's what Cassie's dealing with now. And she did end up getting paid, which is whatever, you know, it, it was part mm-hmm. of her suit. Uh, it was a civil suit, not a, a criminal suit. Um, but have you experienced any of those things in your in your journey? Oh, absolutely. Tons of it. Um, you know, because <clears throat> actually tomorrow is the ninth anniversary of my breaking my silence about Cosby and the Washington Post. And tomorrow is the launch date for my 
book, my memoir, Dirty Diamonds and the Repurposed Life. And I, it's on Amazon, by the way, I'm promoting my book here, but it's really been years of writing and, you know, picking the scabs off of all the old wounds. It's, it's been so painful, but also what has happened in California, New York, New Jersey, and Nevada, the law has changed a new law in New York. It's the look back law in California. It's the adult victims law. It is giving us a one year window of opportunity to seek tangible justice against our rapist, no matter what the statute of limitations is. There is no statute for this year from the 1st of January to the 31st of next month. We have a window of opportunity to file suit. I filed suit against Bill Cosby on the 1st of June this year, which was just something I never, never, ever expected to be able to do. I never even thought about it. I've been speaking out for the last nine years in hopes of just raising consciousness and changing rape culture. I've got children. I've got grandchildren. You know, you just want to leave them a legacy of something important, you know, something that will help their future lives. And, um, I thought my work was done. And then I was approached by former Senator Joe Dunn, who um, let me know that the Adult Victims Act had been signed into law by Governor Newsom, and I could now seek tangible justice against Bill Cosby. So um, that's what I'm in the middle of, and I don't know what the outcome will be. But as soon as I filed suit, I got telephone calls, horrible, horrible telephone calls, ugly, wicked, vicious, filthy calls on my cell phone and my landline. I mean, there's no privacy anymore. And all the years I've been speaking out, I have had nothing but me and all of the other survivors, not just the Cosby survivors, but we were the first who really came out in a big way, 62 of us, public. And now there's even one more who just came out, a, a, a singer from uh, Montreal. And uh, the thing that happened was everybody started accusing us of being gold diggers or white women trying to bring a good black man down. And I would say, well, listen, I gave birth to a good black man. So, you know, he didn't live long, but he was a good man. And, um, you know, all of my friends were all interracial and intercultural families. So the fact that we were being accused of being not only racist, but gold diggers too, I've lost a good friend of mine, a woman who was a, a producer on his show, a black woman. And and my God, I mean, we were friends for 30 years. And she chewed me out so bad. I mean, that was it, you know. <laughs> yep. That's and, uh, no. you know, it, it's uh, it's been a journey, let me tell you, and a, a real eye-opener. Yep. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm sorry you had to endure that. That is a horrible example of um, victim shaming. Um, you know, Ms. Sherry, right. I know that you've been a victim to a lot of different things, um, and I know that you have been 
victimized, you've been bullied, you have become a bully because of the, the trauma and bullying that you went through. Um, and if you can please share um, right now, that would be wonderful. Okay. Well, first I want to tell you, uh, Victoria, my heart goes out to you, and I am so sorry mm-hmm. you went through that. Uh, this this uh, victim shaming that you have been going through, it, it, it re-victimizes you. And uh, mm-hmm. you're basically being victimized all over again, over and over and over again with the phone calls. Uh, you know, it, it's obvious somebody doxed you, got your mm-hmm. information, and then yeah. spread it to all spread it to all of these these people who called you on your cell phone, your landline. Somebody got your information. Yep. He sure did. It was it was scary. You know, I used to leave my front door open in the summertime, you know, because I lived in a cozy little neighborhood up in the foothills of the mountains, you know, and everybody's like family. Right. And, boy, after, after, after I went public with Cosby and we started getting all of those calls, I don't open my front door unless I know who it is, and I keep my front door closed all the time now, which has really limited my my life, you know. Right. I mean, and I'm just one. I'm just one person. And how many people, you know, how many people have suffered the kinds of abuse? And, and not from big stars. I mean, just it goes on every day, every day. Right. You know? Right. And, and, and it's classic. Drinking. Right. While their yeah, while their lives are expanding, ours are shrinking. Right, and it's not fair. It's it's not fair. And no, it's, when, when 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 you're the one having to deal with the fallout, and you see, you know, your abuser getting bigger and bigger, it, it's a slap in the face. I, I get that. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. And I am so sorry. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Thanks for the love because let me tell you, <laughs> love is short in short supply these days, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yep. Right. Yes, it is. Well, we have uh, we have another guest on the line listening and um I know that she herself is a survivor of child sexual abuse and a lot of other forms of abuse. And she's been, she just joined us not too long ago, but I'm sure that she got on enough to kind of hear some of it, I hope, uh, enough to hear uh, what the topic was about. Um, and she herself has just really started standing on her truth and sharing her story and being a voice for the voiceless and advocating for survivors of uh, sexual abuse. And she herself has been enduring some attacks on social media, a lot of attacks, actually, and, you know, reading those comments can really make you go into a place of depression and just make you go into a place of, why did I even open my mouth? I can just shut up. Uh, and so wow. you guys a, a mouthful of the amount of, uh, of pain and torture that victims go through while they're trying to be survivors and strong for others to encourage them to come forward and to let them know that they're not alone so that we can help people and save people from dying and taking their lives out of this depression and feeling alone. But um, she herself endured some of that abuse recently and it's just a little while, but I'll let her introduce herself. So, uh, Ms. Christina, if you can please join us, that would be, that would be wonderful. Thank you. 
for joining us tonight. Thank Hello. You. Hello. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Um, I don't know if you guys can hear me well. I'm in the store. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, but um, was it Miss Victoria that was here? Yes, I'm here, and I hear you fine. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Just thank you for sharing um, your story. And just like a lot of people feel like, because, you know, I'm African-American, and when the whole thing came out about Bill Cosby, everybody was like, oh, my gosh, we got to protect him. But then I started thinking about the things that happened in my life and the men who were protected and the times when I didn't feel protected. So, like Dr. Nancy had um, mentioned, I released a book. I released a book back in uh, 22 of March, and it was called um, Suppressed Wounds, Redemption, and Recovery, where I just, like, began to talk about my childhood um, abuse. But yeah. I didn't I didn't realize, like, once I released the book, because I, I would share my testimony. I've shared my testimony for about 20 years, but this is the time that I actually went into detail from, you know, age three, and age four, five, six, and then so on and so forth. Um, And when I I released the book, my sisters read it. And what broke my heart was that my sisters shared their abuse at that time, you know. So I was like, you know what, let me start this whole redemption and recovery type of movement or, you know, do these little podcast shows, you know, to to bring awareness to it. But it's like when I started doing that and I did an interview with um, Untold Stories, I started seeing a lot of – nasty comments. People were saying that I made up the story. They were saying that um, it was rehearsed. They were saying they started, um, you know, saying horrible things about my mom. No one said anything about my dad who was addicted to crack cocaine, you know. <laughs> no one said anything about that. But um, that's how it goes. It, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And uh, and, yeah. and I just I just really admire you for just telling your stories and others that I've heard tell stories because it makes me stronger, you know, and I just really thank God for Dr. Nancy who reached out to me the other day because I got to a point where I was like, you know what, I don't, I don't know if I really want to share anymore because of the shame. And then I started feeling shame and guilt. And it's like, why should I feel that way when this is my voice? And like I said, a lot of people don't want to come out, but I received a lot of inboxes, you know, private messages saying, oh, my gosh, that happened to me. And and it's like, you know, it, it, the story goes on. So as we continue to share, just know that, you know, we're empowering, we're empowering others to continue to share. So I just, I don't know, Dr. Nancy, I, was I supposed to say something else? <laughs> so I'm just excited about this call, and I thank you. No, I think um, it was perfect. Um you know, you, you said exactly what we were talking about, the the fact that when people get the courage to come forward and then they're under attack, and then it makes us feel like we did something wrong, and we didn't do anything wrong. We were victims. I know um, my co-host, Sherry White, you know, she wrote three books, and she has also been through a lot in her life, and she's been coming forward. She's been through bullying, and when she was, I'm sure, younger, she became a bully, you know what I mean? But um, mm-hmm. I wanted to also get her input as to what what she's hearing from, you know, from the survivors. Have you yourself ever been ashamed or been, been shamed by people because you came forward with your story to help other people? Because it's still bad oh, at me that people go that. 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, mm-hmm. when I uh, when, when I published my first book, which is called From Victim to Victor, a Survivor's True Story of Her Experience with, with School Bullying, mm-hmm. I got a mm-hmm. lot of, of hatred. I've got a lot of threats, uh, mainly uh, from my classmates, my former classmates, and uh, a couple of people that that were associated with them. I mean, I got death threats. I got, uh, you name it, I got it. Um, Wow. So, you know, I understand where you're coming from, and and it does. It re-victimizes you, and it hurts. It hurt, but you know, I knew that that me speaking out was a good thing because not only was it therapeutic for me, but I knew that it would help so many other people who were who are being bullied today. So, you know, I you know I just it, you know that part didn't traumatize me because it was what I expected. Uh, I mean, I knew when I, you know, while I was writing the book, I I knew that I would get a lot of hatred from that. And I prepared myself for, I don't know if you can really prepare yourself for that, but uh, I did the best I could to prepare myself for it. Mm -hmm. I just didn't realize the extent of the hatred I would get. And, you know, some of it was scary, but, you know, I just, I prayed about it and I pushed on. And uh, soon, you know, at, you know, it, 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 uh, it went on for a while, but, you know, after, you know, a lot, after some time went by, it, it died down because yeah. I wasn't going to shut up. It's like the more they would threatened me, the more names they called me, the more I was determined to get my message out there. Wow. It, that, it, that angered, me. it angered me more than it scared me. Huh. It mm-hmm. angered me more Bless than it hurt me. Mm-hmm. It, it made me more determined. Well, well that says a lot about your spine. Speak now, you know? Is that Victoria now? Victoria speaking? I'm sorry, I was jumping in. I was just saying, you know, that says a whole lot about who she, who you are, you know, your spine, the strengths of character that you have, you know, instead of cowering and falling to the wayside, you know, and shrinking back into the shadows out of fear, you stood up. You know, you became more determined, and, and God bless you for that, because... You know, um, that's what it takes. That's what it takes. And we all have to join together right. and support each other. Thank yeah. you and so I, much, I Victoria. You, oh, sorry. I promise you, when you come forward, it's like a, a spiritual sister holding your hand, letting you know that they, too, can come forward. Um, I wanted to, uh, to say something. So, okay, I'm going to plug in my book. Everybody said their book. I wrote a book in 2017 <laughs> called, hey, I might as well. Uh, it's called My Costa Rican Hummingbird Sings. My Costa Rican Hummingbird Sings, Breaking the Bondage and Answering the Call. And uh, in 2017, I wrote this book, and it was, you know, covering addiction, trauma recovery. Uh, it was just a, whole, a host of things, in-laws from hell, divorce, 
uh, just recovery. It was a real recovery book. Um, and God had me writing about, like, the suicide rate going up. I wanted to ask you guys, you know, have you ever, and I'm a suicide survivor, and unfortunately um, in 2020 I lost my sister to suicide. I share that in, in, in many groups. Um, and so, you know, when you guys, the type of trauma that you endured, and I want everyone to please get a chance to share if you have had any experience with with um, suicidal thoughts, whether it was after your sexual abuse or after telling your story, wishing that you never did. Um, and please um, just say your name before you start so everyone can know who's speaking. Thank you. Uh-huh. I'll, I'll start. Um, it's Christina. So this is actually recent. I want to say probably about seven or eight months ago. So, I mean, being married and then having a husband who is, you know, having a lot of health challenges, it's like I allowed that along with the backlash of uh, the victim shaming, people reaching out, people, you know, just leaving nasty comments, um, a lot of unanswered questions because, you know, I told my mom that it was a very close family member. Um, Nancy, Nancy, Dr. Nancy knows, but... I was I was going to confront both that person along with my mom to try to discover exactly what did they do to me when I was three, you know. Uh-huh. Um, but I knew that I would be I, w- I was going to see them. So a lot of different things started to go along in my mind with seeing those nasty comments, with um, reliving those things from the past. Like I couldn't even look at that person's picture anymore. Even though that happened over 30 years ago, I just I couldn't. I was so disgusted with myself and the situation to the point where I had my I had my gun and I started to play around with it, you know, just thinking about the idea of just ending my life so that I don't have to deal with it. So that's why it's very important that we speak up and speak out so that when people start to victim shame, those victims who are now victors can begin to say, you know what? Hey, if she did it, if she could tell her story, I could tell my story, and I can I can live through this situation, and that that's my little my little piece of me. Then that that's most recent, um, and this is my first time sharing openly that I really was contemplating on ending it all. But if I have done, if I would have done that, <laughs> I wouldn't have been here today to share just that piece. So what y'all are doing is is, is very encouraging and it's very inspirational. So thank you, ladies. And gentlemen, you're wow. very welcome. Wow. Wow. Thank well, you for sharing that, uh, Christina. Well, I I have not had anybody. Uh, this is Victoria, by the way. Um, I've never had anybody in my family commit suicide in that kind of way. I'm I'm a registered nurse, and I did have uh, one of my patients commit suicide on my shift. That's the closest I've ever come to actual suicide, and that was pretty horrific. I stopped doing private duty nursing after that. I couldn't. He shot himself between the eyes on my shift, and uh, I just, wow, for a long time, I couldn't drive at night. I couldn't step out on my back porch at night. Somehow I would always see his image, but I was also, at the same time, somehow all kind of merged with Cosby's in, image too, but I was suicidal a lot back in the 60s when I was in my 20s, 
Um, I was a multi-rape survivor. I was a um, child abuse survivor. I was a domestic abuse survivor. And I was, um, uh, well, trafficked by my first husband, who was Afro-Cuban, a drummer, a con man. And I was 19, and he was much older than I. And and now he was the father of my my child. And um, and after all of that, I just I just wanted to die when I got out of it. I you know I wound up taking a lot of uh, diet pills. That's what they called them then. I don't think anybody realized back in the day that they were addictive. Because I worked nightclubs, I was a bunny at the Playboy Club and on the Sunset Strip, and you know all of the the nightclub managers or the doctors that the bunnies had all gave us diet pills so that we would stay trim to fit into our costumes, and then they gave us uh, diuretics to lose. They always said it was water weight. Well, now as a registered nurse. I understand that losing all that water and the um, amphetamines and all of that extra estrogen that they were putting into the birth control pills, which were a new thing at the time, and they've now backed off on the amount of estrogen, but there was a lot of estrogen in those original um, birth control pills back in the early 60s, so it, it made you pack on a lot of weight, and so out of fear of losing our jobs and not being able to feed our kids, of course, you know, we would take the diet pills, the birth control pills, and the diuretics. So we were having electrolyte imbalances, and we were collapsing in the service bars, you know, horrible stuff. And your bowels and everything get all messed up. And you start thinking, of course, that it's there's something innately wrong with you, you know, you don't right. understand. I mean, back in the day, I mean, we had no idea about PTSD. We had no understanding of what diuretics and high doses of estrogen plus amphetamines did to you. And so we all took it personally. And it wasn't until we were all grandmothers and we were sitting around having our little Chardonnay and talking about the memories of when we all worked at the club that we all discovered that we were all going through the same thing, but each one of us was so ashamed that we thought it was just us. So we never talked about it with the rest of us. And so it was pretty much of a mind blower, you know? And then, um, so taking all that stuff, you know, you just, you, you're, you just get so depressed and then you run out of the diet pills And then you go into this deep depression, which you think is also about you. You don't realize you're going through withdrawals. And you get into these deep, deep depressions where you can't even see the hand in front of your face. Your life is so dark, you know. And, um, I mean, I, I was just a mess for a long time until it finally dawned on me that it was really, um, the pills and I just cold turkeyed. I got off of them. And then 
ultimately I started coming back, but I was still really depressed about everything that had happened to me up until then. But I was climbing back, and I finally got this recording contract because I was writing songs and picking a little guitar and folk singing and all this, anti-war songs mostly, because it was during Vietnam. And uh, and then my my kid died. You know, He was my life. And then right after that, Cosby raped me. And it was just like, you know, the old image that they tell us, you know, Godzilla and Bambi, you know, it's just like you have all these ideals and dreams and you're feeling like, God, life is getting better. And then Godzilla comes and steps on you, you know, and crushes you. And, uh, and so after I left LA, I lived in this dirt floored garage out in Topanga Canyon for almost nine months. And let me tell you something, I mainlined cocaine I drove really fast around those terrible sharp curves on the uh, mountain roads with a jug of hard cider at my heels. I did absolutely, totally self-destructive stuff. I had no self-esteem. I was at a loss. I had no son, so therefore I didn't even know who I was anymore. You know, if I'm not mama, who who the hell am I, you know? And um, I just... It was like, well, I got nothing left to lose. You know, I wasn't actively killing myself, but I was doing all of the things that could, oh, by accident, I could go over a cliff. You know, oh, by accident, I could overdose, you know. So it was essentially suicidal without putting a gun to my head, you know. So, you know, eventually... Um, the one thing that saved my life, frankly, was meeting this crazy Cajun songwriter in Topanga Canyon, and a white guy, um, and his father was a congressman in St. Martin Parish in Louisiana. And here I am, the, the bereaved mother of a multiracial, uh, biracial child. And he said, I'm going home. My father had a stroke, can't run for Congress. I got to go home and protect my inheritance from my uncles and he said you want to come with me and I thought well nothing left to lose you know I already left everything uh, in the ground everything's gone so we hit the road got back there and his um, mother was the one who saved my life she was just a simple loving woman who taught me to make gumbo you know chop okra shell crawfish and I was crocheting and, uh, you know, and she would just sit with me in the cu- in the kitchen and look at me with tears in her eyes. And she would say, I love you, Chef. I love you. And he was just this crazy alcoholic, you know, as it turned out, because, of course, you know, when you're in a bad place, you attract people who are in the, the same place, you know, the same energy level. And uh, so in spite of him... I had her. And even with my own mother, I had never had anybody look at me with that kind of love and tell me they loved me and loved me unconditionally. You know, and that's the key right there. It's loving unconditionally. doesn't matter if you got a word on your nose, you know. It doesn't right. matter. You know, and when he and I would have an argument or he wouldn't come home all night, because he'd be out in the bars, 
I would go over to her house. She never asked any questions. She just made me up a bed on the sofa, handed me a cold beer, a gumbo, you know, and patted me on the head, gave me a hug. That was it, you know. And, man, that was what saved my life, I'll tell you. You know, unconditional love was really all it was. Not all it was. I I don't want to diminish it because it was everything. You know, it was everything. Everything. You know. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Yep. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying there, you know, there's so many different ways of killing yourself and being suicidal, you know. Um, Right. Just being reckless and, you know, and going with the wrong people and just having so much despair. Because it's really despair. You have no, what's there for you? You know, what's there? What's left? Nothing, you know? Yeah. And unless you get somebody who comes to you with that love, you know, um, you're you're lost, you know. So, anyway, sorry. No, no. But anyway, no. The mic here. No, no. No, we're good. We got 30 minutes, girl. You're fine. I just uh, I just wanted to say thank you so much for sharing that because a lot of survivors, they're going through it by themselves, and right now they need to hear these stories. They need to know that they're not alone. I know, Ms. White, Ms. Um, Sherry, you also, also have gone through a lot in your life, so I don't know if you feel like sharing, but um, I know it's here in, in, in the bio. Uh, you're also a survivor, and so if you can share with us uh, why at that at the age of 14 uh, you went through those type of emotions, and and just kind of share with us a little bit of your part of dealing with those that feeling. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, I at, at 14 I took a bunch of pills and tried to commit suicide. I ended up in intensive care for a week. I almost died. And I'm so glad I survived. But the feelings, that the stuff that I was going through back then, I was being bullied by my peers. Uh, and, you know, when you're bullied, let me point out that when you're bullied, you get sexually harassed a lot too. Uh, groping. Uh, boys sticking their hands up your skirt, you know, it it makes you feel so cheap. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I got groped a lot. I got sexual comments thrown at me because they knew that if, if I spoke out about it, no one would believe me because I'd already been smeared for a couple of years. So my reputation was completely trashed. And once your reputation is crashed, nobody wants to hear anything from you, you know. They they don't believe you. Right. So they took that as as a green light to, you know, not only bully me, beat me up, uh, talk down to me, but sexually harass me as well. So, and it really makes a woman feel cheap. You know, when you have guys groping you, you know, sticking their hand up your skirt, you know, even though you didn't ask for it, you feel like you you must have worn the wrong thing. Um, that you feel like that it's somehow your fault, and when it's not. But uh, anyway, I had uh, 
I had told my parents about being bullied and being harassed. And, you know, there was only so much they can do because, you know, the school was not on my side. They were on the side of the bullies. So, you know, when my parents would go to bat for me, a lot of times they would tell my parents, you know, some of it wasn't true, some of it was, but they would they would embellish on it. And so, I mean, back then, you know, the, they took the adult's word over a child's, and a lot of my teachers joined in with the bullying. So, you know, I, I had no support. You know, the only outlet I had was to write about it. So I wrote about it. I kept a journal, and I wrote about it. That was the only outlet I had. Of course, I didn't start writing about it until after I'd committed suicide. But, it, you know, I've looked back, and it's it's not that I wanted to die. I, I don't think I wanted to die. But it was the only way to make to make it stop. It was the only way to make the pain go away. I felt like... Mm-hmm. Killing myself would be the only way to make the pain go away. Uh, that was that was in my fourteen year old mind back then. You know, as long as I'm alive, this is going to keep going, and you feel like it's never going to stop. You feel like you're always going to have victims stamped on your forehead. Mm-hmm. So the suicide wasn't really to kill myself per se, but it was to make everything stop. Wow. That, that maybe well, because I really... felt like I had no support. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, you know, everything was my fault. I couldn't do anything right. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, when I started writing about it after the suicide, you know, it relieved a lot of it, 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 it was a relief. I felt like it was a weight off my shoulders. And so I kept those uh, journals put away for years and years and years. And when, when, I, when I finally decided to write my book, I took those journals down and, and uh, incorporated them into my book. So... But that's why people, I think that's why people commit suicide. It's not that they want to die per se. And when you're a teenager, you really don't understand the finality of death. Death is final. I mean, it's, there's no coming back from it. And when you're, when you're a naive teenager like I was, you really don't understand the finality of it. All you're thinking about is just making the pain go away. So that's the point I was wanting to make. I can relate to that. Thank you for sharing that perspective, um, Sherry, because I really, I personally can relate to that. I know, um, Ms. Christina, you said you can relate to that. Did you want to say something in in regards to the connection? I I do. um, Is it Ms. Sherry? Uh, It's Sheree. Sheree, Sheree. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. Oh, that's okay. 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Cherie, because I, I can relate to that as well. And I didn't realize that, you know, age 14, when I was out, I was promiscuous. I think sometimes, some nights I would sleep with two men, some, night, some nights I would sleep with 20, you know. And even though people, they would say things about me, oh, you're a whore, you're nasty, you're a slut, I don't want to be around you. You know, I didn't realize that I was self-soothing by being sexually promiscuous. And and then there's a lot of things that I'm realizing now as an adult, you know, and going through therapy that I'm like, whoa, that was a trauma response. And I felt right. like, and I felt like I was like, you know, here, instead of, you know, the men just coming up and touching me and molesting me and raping me, I'm going to use my body. This is, this is my body. And it even got to a point where I was like, um, I didn't, think of myself as being a prostitute. I'm like, I don't want to get no money for this. Like, I'm just going to go have sex. And, you know, not even realizing the danger that I was putting myself in, thinking that I was right. really um, saving myself or self, self uh, how do you say it, self-preserving or, um, you know, but I was putting myself in danger, but thinking that I was really helping myself, like, here, I'm going to go ahead and do this right now before anyone else does. So I, I read one of the comments from the interview I had did a while back, and I'm like, wow, because this person said what I was doing was I was, I was re-victimizing myself. I was going out right. to victimize myself, and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> that's right. true. That's what I was doing. So thank you for sharing that. You're very welcome. Wow. Wow. And uh, I want to tell you, I'm, I'm sorry that you went through what you went through, Christina. Know that you didn't deserve that. You didn't deserve to be abused. Nobody does. Thank you. And I want to com- I want to commend you for speaking out about the about what you've been through. I appreciate I admire that. you for that. I, yeah, I, I, admire, I admire you all as well, and and I, I appreciate that. But I think the thing that hurts me the most is, like, people that's closest to me, I wish that I heard this from them, or I just wish that they'll say that to me, and that's that's been the, that's been the hardest part. You know, it's like my dad or my stepdad that's... or my uncle to say, hey, I'm so sorry that happened to you. You know, my mom was the only person that protected me the best that she could, and it's like, I just wish that I heard that from others, but I appreciate that, and I appreciate you ladies, your transparency as, as well. I, I understand that. You know, we, you know, the ones we love, you know, we want to hear that from the ones we love more than we want to hear that from total strangers, and that's completely understandable because they're your family. They're supposed to love you and support you. So I I get that. And again, mm-hmm. I'm so sorry that your own, some of your own family won't even acknowledge what you've been through. Thank you. Yeah, no kidding. My God. Uh huh. Very traumatic. Um, and then Very... again, so thank you, ladies, for for being the voice for survivors, you know. Um, yeah, we've been victimized, but we're still here, you know. We're, we are survivors. We're surviving. And as we continue to survive, many of us will continue to thrive. And so 
you know, writing our story and speaking up and doing all these uh, steps that we're doing to help, excuse me, other survivors, um, it's so empowering um, because at least we know, excuse me, that we're not alone. And so um, I think that that's a beautiful thing, that, that we're able to create a community here in NASCA um, you know, we're able to share our stories on the platform that allows others to go back and say, hey, look, this is still, uh, this is like our uh, NASCA Bible where it's recorded. People could go back to a chapter uh, and they're able to pretty much uh, figure out, you know, some of the tools. We're helping people get the tools to survive. We're helping people get the tools to their recovery and we're reminding people that through their recovery, recovery, they are not alone. And I think that that is such a uh, empowerment and such a um, such a sisterhood, brotherhood move. Uh, again, we're on scan number three three one seven, and um, I just want to thank everyone who shared tonight. We have seventeen minutes, so it's not time to close out yet. Um, but you know, how has this shifted? Uh, you as you continue to walk in your recovery, how, and I want to make sure, you know, if everyone can just get a little chance to share, how has this shifted you? How has this empowered you? What have you done to be part of the change? Um, and to, you know, I know some of you guys have written your story. Um, a little noise in the background, so if you're not speaking, please press mute. Uh, and I'm going to mute myself after too because I have a little noise in my background as well. But, um, you know, what have you done to be a part of the change today? Where are you today in your movement to empower others? Because, yeah, we went through those things. Yes, we fell down. Uh, but today I do a lot of advocacy. Today I was at the jail, uh, at the women's prison with the pregnant women, and I also was working with the men, believe it or not. Today I was. Um, wow. And it was the empowering move. I really, I, I, I thought I was going to be there for an hour. I ended up there for three hours. I was getting a little sleepy. Uh, but we did turkeys at a place, and, you know, we had the little uh, turkey little, um, it's called the beard. I didn't know it was called the beard. I learned that today. And also another fun fact that I learned was that the beak is made out of the same um, material or whatever it's called that the shell is made out of. Uh, and so... In some countries, they eat the beets because it's high in calcium. So a lot of learning today. But guess what? At the end of the day today, they wanted to learn more about parenting. They wanted to learn about recovery, how to come uh, back and, and work on healing with families after being in prison. And, uh, and next time I go there, we're going to talk about trauma because guess what? A lot of them... Even though we didn't talk about it today, it was a ha-ha-ha day. Today was just a he-he-he-ha-ha day. But I know a lot of them have been through severe levels of trauma, and most likely that's how they ended up where they are today. Um, And so I'm going to stop talking. I just want to know if we can go around to share some of the empowering things that we're doing today. Because, yeah, we went through pain, guys, and, yes, we can relate with that pain, but today we're moving forward, and what are we doing in that healing and recovery steps of moving forward today? Wow, well, this is uh, this is Sheree. I'm I'm writing books. This is how I empower myself. I write books. 
uh, I haven't just written a memoir. I, I also wrote, uh, I've also written fiction books with a theme that surrounds bullying. Um, and in fact, I just, uh, I just, uh, my latest book just went available on uh, the other day. Um, it's not available on Amazon yet, but uh, it's out. Uh, I wrote a sequel to one of my fictions. It's something I've always wanted to do in life. So I empower myself by continuing to write books and uh, doing things that I enjoy doing. That's part of my self-care. gives me a feeling of empowerment. Yeah, absolutely. And just to live my best life. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And I think that's important. You know, you're documenting uh, your life. Uh, and, you're, and, and, you know, they always say champions or survivors. And uh, they leave footprints in the sand. They leave clues. People who are survivors, people who are success. Success leaves clues. And so surviving is, is, is success. Uh, being here today, uh, being able to say, hey, I made it, it's success. Um, Ms. Victoria, can you tell us some of the things that you're doing today to walk in your recovery and empower others and, you know, where are you at with that? Well, I, you know, I um, my book is going to go live on Amazon tomorrow. Um, so they're doing a 99-cent sale on Kindle to propel the algorithm up so I'll get bestseller status. Everything is algorithms now, and I'm an old lady. I chop wood and sew by hand still, you know, but uh, I'm learning. Anyway, um, so if you all go on Amazon and, and check out my book, Dirty Diamonds, The Repurposed Life of a Playboy Icon and Cosby Survivor, and you'll see the old blonde with the glasses uh, on the cover. And um, that has been the culmination of writing this book for years and years and years. And it has been the most painful and powerful thing at all these years that I've, I've had to do. I've had to rewrite it. I've had to pick this, the scabs off of old wounds over and over again and relive the past traumas. But it was so important to tell my story. And, you know, just because so much had happened to me before I was, you know, 30. And I thought, um, you know, see that there's light at the end of the tunnel, you know, and that you can't give up no matter what they try to do to you. You know, you just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other. You got to throw your shoulders back and chin up, That's you know, right. and, and, uh, and keep moving forward. And I used to think about all the things that happened to my grandma and my great aunt. My grandma was, um, paralyzed with polio from the time she was four years old, you know, back in Iowa <laughs> in the old days, you know, and um, they told her she could never have children. She could never get married. She could never do this. She could never do that. And that woman 
taught herself how to write with her left hand because she was right-handed and that was the side she was paralyzed on. She got homeschooled because they tried to force her to write with her right hand and she had to go home. She ran home. She left school and never went back and she was homeschooled after that. And she knew poetry. She knew good literature and she sewed all my baby clothes with a treadle machine and by hand and she led the church choir and she learned to play both sides of both parts on the piano with just her left hand and she made biscuits every bloody Sunday you know rolled them out and held the crock bowl in her crippled right arm and whipped all that batter with a long-handled wooden spoon with her left hand and she homesteaded 160 acres in South Dakota and she married the most handsome cousin and had three babies at home all by herself, you know, and then she was widowed after 10 years at the beginning of the Great Depression, you know, and her sister was a school teacher, never married, and sent half of her meager wages home to help her sister and then went home for the summer and taught those children. And I... Every time I would get down in blue and think that I couldn't make it another minute, I would think of Grandma and Auntie, and I would say, you know, if they can make it, I can. And that just pulled me together. As hard as it was some days, I would just think, I can't give up. I can't give up now. I have to keep going. And and then my mother lost all of her hair, never grew back when I was seven years old, from the mumps. And she'd been a beautiful woman, and suddenly she was a bald-headed woman, no eyelashes, no eyebrows, nothing. And then she lost all of her color pigment. So she was like the ultimate white woman, right? And uh, and I saw her pull that together with wigs and, you know, and, and, and fight through all of that and still manage to be beautiful and stand proud. And these women whose shoulders we stand upon, who came from those older generations when they were tough, you know, they didn't let nothing get by them. And and we have had to learn from those women and keep going. And, And that's part of my story, you know, is Cosby was like the last straw broken on my already broken back, kept me going was remembering my grandma and auntie, remembering what my mother went through and saying, if they went through it and if they made it, I can make it. And I had to do it. And I just, it was like I just couldn't give up. I had to do it somehow. As miserable as I was, I had to do it. And so writing this book the last nine years was to tell that story so that people understood that there was light at the end of the tunnel. You know, even on my journey after Cosby, I wound up uh, being abandoned while I was pregnant with my second daughter and with a 22-acre farm up in Oregon, goat farm. I had a herd of 36 dairy goats that I had to milk every day twice and only wood fire and the wood-burning stove in the kitchen and uh, a little girl, and then I was pregnant with my second one. And her father walked out on us, and it was the coldest winter in 40 years. And I had just gotten a job as a nursing assistant in a local nursing home. And do you know something? 
as hard as that was, sitting with those old people who had been through everything already, and they were so close to death. And we would sit there because I had the 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. shift, and they would tell me their stories. And do you know that was what inspired me to keep going when I just wanted to lie down and give it all up, you know? I thought after everything I had been through and I thought my life was moving up and now I've been abandoned, I'm pregnant, and I'm, how old was I? I was 35, you know? (laughs) I thought, my God, does it ever end? But listening to the old generation's stories and what they went through made me feel like I, I couldn't be a, I couldn't be a wuss, you know. I couldn't, I couldn't give up because I had, I had the, the the blood in me, you know, from all of these past generations. It didn't matter what race they were, what culture, what religion. I was, I had to carry their legacy somehow. You know, I couldn't just roll over and die when I wanted to. And and I had to tell that story because there's so many people who who don't have hope, who don't have faith, who need it from somebody. Like I never had a mother who looked at me with tears in her eyes and said, I love you, Chef. Mm-hmm. I had a mother-in-law who did that. You know, so the story is about you've got to follow your own yellow brick road. It's not always the family that you're born to. It's the family that God gives you. That's right. You know, and they're the ones that keep you going. They're the ones that, that wrap you up in their spiritual arms, wrap you in light so that you can keep going, so that somehow you are on the path that, that, that God, the universe, the spirits, the goddesses, whatever you believe, put you on this earth to do. You know, we, I believe that we come in to this life with a purpose. But somehow, because we don't remember what we came from, we don't know what we're supposed to do. And so a lot of our journey is trying to find out what our journey is, you know, what we're supposed to be doing, our purpose here in life. And I think ultimately our whole purpose as a, as a human race is to learn how to become harmonious with the divine. So every trouble that we have is like, you know, throwing dull rocks in a rock tumbler to shine them up and make them more beautiful, make them diamonds, you know, so that we can reflect back that light of God. So we can, you know, we can become more, I don't know, just more crystalline, more perfect, more pure, so that we can blend with God with God, with the divine, whatever you want to call God, you know, I mean, everybody has their own name and their belief, but, you know, God is that great energy that encompasses us all and wraps us in its its arms, because I believe that God is mother and father, you know, male and female, you know, because without the female, we are uh, off balance. You know. All right. 
Not, not to cut you off, but that was perfect because you wrapped it up right then and there. So we have two minutes. So I want to make sure that we all get a chance just to, to leave some words of encouragement because we're about to be off in two minutes, y'all. All right, so for me, I would just say keep rising up, uh, keep being brave, uh, and just keep rising up and telling your story. Don't allow others to scare you and to intimidate you. And surround yourself with other survivors so that you can get empowerment and and distance yourself from anyone who is toxic, mean, rude, nasty, and, and it does not encourage your higher self of healing. Uh, anybody else would like to leave a couple of words? A minute and 43 seconds, I, y'all. I, I would really quickly. It's Christina. I would say go back. Go back and become – go back for that little girl, the little girl inside of you or that little yes. boy inside of you. Become who you needed at that age. So that's my encouragement. And and That's I, awesome. I agree with you. And can I say also that we have to be of service to others because through mm-hmm. service we are healed. Amen. That's right. Mm-hmm. Who's next? You have a minute. Uh, you know, I'm I, I'm I'm with Christina. Uh, I'm, and Victoria shared a what what you just said. Victoria is beautiful. Uh, with uh, Christina, I'm the I'm the same way. I want to be the person to to others that I didn't have. Mm-hmm. I want yeah. to be I want to be that support. I want to be the support, the source of support that I didn't have when I was. Right. Younger, yeah. So, and I think that's a beautiful. I think that was a beautiful statement you made. So we have to take lessons from the pain and transform it into empathy and compassion for others who are going through it on a different level. You know, so we heal ourselves by being of service to others on the path. All right, y'all, so our time is up. Everything was beautifully said. Thank you all for joining us tonight. And until next time, looking forward to connecting with you ladies again. Thank you for joining us. Good night. Good night. Good night.